Hello, everybody. I'm Tishar Jain, co-founder and managing partner at Multicoin Capital. I am panicked about authoritarian laws being spread in the guise of public health. Welcome to my padded room. The sound is so good. We yeah. should have video monitors everywhere. We, our guests want to see me. Really? Have yeah, you seen you yeah, before? you heard him. Yeah, he wants to see the mole. Everybody wants to see the mole. Thinking of having it removed. But why? In a, in a room, in a, in a show without video, who needs the mole removed? Exactly. All right. None of this riffraff today. We have a really special guest who's made me a lot of money. Um, so I, I, I've got to check in. Is that okay, Knut? Yeah, perfectly good. And I never told you about this investment because um, I try and keep the good ones to myself. Yeah, no kidding. That's what my LPs say. Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> Anyways, in 2017, my friend Vinny, Vinny Lingham, uh, he had a great band in the 70s, the Lingham Brothers. <laughs> the uh, Vinny Lingham, a South African friend of mine, was uh, who's always got stuff. Anytime I call Vinny, I got to have my wallet out. And so he called me, he's in La Jolla now, we're investors in this company, Civic, and he said, Howard, uh, you and Gary need to invest in Multicoin. And I think I was in the process, Canute, in 2017, of being, I was in Tel Aviv at the end of 2017, it was crypto fever, fever. And I think I was in the process of selling, <laughs> if you go to my blog, I was just like, oh my God, signs of a crypto top. And I did, I was, whatever crypto I had, I was selling uh, I didn't know anything about crypto, mm -hmm. except that people were 11 years old and talking about it. I'm having a coffee, an espresso. All right. And I I, I did what you call um, schmuck insurance. Uh, have you heard of schmuck insurance? I, I think I can understand what that means. Have, yeah. have you called me a schmuck without me knowing? No. All right. So schmuck Always insurance. <laughs> schmuck insurance is something Jews do to prevent, in case something good happens. We don't want to be called a schmuck. So I took some of our crypto money. Me and Gary said, well, we got on the phone. We got, what's the proper amount of schmuck insurance uh, here to uh, invest? And and we each invested a little bit, uh, a couple hundred grand, which for us is still real money in in the hedge fund of Multicoin. Flash forward, I don't know, it's a, a bazillion percent. These guys, they've never asked me for anything. I don't send them gifts. They just send me money. Uh, I've taken some profits along the way and... It's now Jan 2022. I've had Kyle on the show a few times. I don't know which guy is smarter. I, 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 I hold them out as equal geniuses. And they, more importantly than, than having great returns, they've, they've ridden the bear market. They've seen the dark side. They started their firm, uh, I think Tushar was telling me, at $2.5 million. So imagine my schmuck insurance has done okay because they are now in the billions of dollars. And that is the world of investing, as we see here. You know, your network sometimes throws some gems in, in front of you. And uh, I had talked to Kyle for a while. He had met Fred Wilson, blah, 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 blah. And we took some risks. And my schmuck insurance is now a NASDAQ. And so I want to talk to Tushar about the current market, obviously, uh, what it was like in 2018 and 2019 in the bear market. And a look ahead to see, you know, through the fog, uh, 
it's pretty loud out there right now, and a lot of people are in pain from this uh, pullback. And look through the fog with Tushar and say, hey, you know, you got a two to five year horizon. Um, these pullbacks tend to get rid of the riffraff, as they say in our business. And there is mucho riffraff. Um, what's on the other side of this fog? Is that, is that helpful, Knut? Yeah. Uh, big time. I, I can't even remember. Who's the guest? I think you'll find out. Okay. Send me a note. So hang on. Okay. You ready? Why do you have a blue dot? Are you using a Google phone? Me? You really were not paying you enough. Yeah, you're not paying me enough. <laughs> I have it on recording. Now. So we have Tushar Jane, one of the founders of Multicoin. So let's get him on the phone. Tushar. Hey, Howard. How is ya? Uh, doing all right. How are you? I'm doing good. Are you in Austin today? I am in Austin. It's a, a rainy day here. Living life. Life is good. And I gave a little intro about your firm. Tell me a little bit about Multicoin Capital. Uh, we've had Kyle on the show, so I don't want to do too dig into the past. But uh, today, how many people, locations, and focus? Yeah, uh, just at a high level, Multicoin is an investment firm focused on the blockchain space. Uh, our mission is to accelerate the adoption of sovereign software and increase the freedom that people have in the world. We have 14 employees today. We don't have an office. We're remote first. We're spread out all over the world. And the biggest worry that I have, no, I don't worry anymore about stuff. You know, crypto would make me worry if I had my own wallet. Is that the biggest worry at Multicoin? Do people call you and go, okay, I know you made this money, but where the hell is it? Like, I mean... Is that the biggest part of the firm is just tracking and storing? No, not really. We don't actually hold like any keys ourselves. We use qualified custodians and third-party service providers. We have to for regulatory reasons. You know, we're a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Uh, and there's a bunch of laws and uh, regulatory restrictions that come with that. So, you know, we use service providers like Coinbase Custody or Genesis or others for that. Now, you met, thank you, you met uh, Kyle back at NYU, correct? Yeah, we met in 2008, freshman year. And so I, I remember getting his, you know, moment. What was the, for me, it was Yoni Asia, 2010, 2011, talking to me about Bitcoin. It didn't mean anything to me. What was your aha moment? Do you remember it? I do. I had two aha moments. The first is when I heard about Bitcoin, which was 2013, which was a little early, but, you know, later than you and some other people. And I bought a couple, literally just two. Uh, I thought of it as tuition, so I would learn about it. And I just couldn't do anything with the Bitcoin. Like, you know, Silk Road wasn't for me. <laughs> so I just bought those two. I sat on it and I said, I'll come back when you can like build something on mm -hmm. this tech. That's not to diminish the value of Bitcoin. It's just like I'm more interested in the tech side of blockchain, not the monetary policy side of blockchain. Like, I don't care about Austrian economics, really. Um, I, I care more about coordinating human economic activity. So then in 2016, Kyle called me and told me that I need to look at this. And he sent me the Ethereum white paper. And that was my really big aha moment that led to me wanting to go all in on the industry. Because what I saw was just a new way to coordinate people and coordinate the economy. And I had just read Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari which was a really influential book on my thinking. When I combined that with reading the Ethereum white paper, I was like, I need to go all in. 
did you know how young he was? Like, would that have changed your opinion if you knew he was 11? I mean, he was working as an intern when he came up with this at Eddie Toro, you know, and he was telling me the stories. So did it matter how old he was or it was just he saw the future? Who was? Vitalik. Oh, no, I don't care. Vitalik is like clearly a genius um, and clearly just like one of the most exceptional people who's ever lived. So, yeah, I, I mean, did you care that Isaac Newton was like, 19 when he created calculus like probably not yeah i did that's why i never studied it in trust calculus <laughs> made by like a 19 beethoven. year old <laughs> <laughs> it's like beethoven or in my case like snoopy snoop snoop snoopy comic so so you read the white paper what year is that 15 Ethereum? 17 17 only oh my sorry God. sorry 16 16 so you read that you you coordinate yourself with kyle is that when you decide we're going to start a firm or, or how did it all come together yeah, I mean, we read it in 16, got obsessed, just spent like the whole year arguing with people on the internet about how this is going to evolve. Um, <laughs> sounds, right? Like no one knew fun. anything, right? Like you got to realize like in those early days, uh, I mean, you've heard the parable of like the blind men and the elephant and, you know, everyone's feeling a different part of the elephant. You know, one guy feels a leg is like, this is a tree. Mm-hmm. Another guy feels the ear and is like, this is a fan. Another guy here feels the trunk is like, this is a hose. Yeah. And like, that's what we were as an industry, just like stumbling through, mm-hmm. wondering like, what is this thing? Mm-hmm. Um, so we spent a year just like doing that kind of as amateurs. And come May 2017, we were just like, I'm obsessed with this. Are you obsessed with this? He's like, yeah, I'm obsessed with this. Okay. Like, do you think you can work doing anything else? No, I don't, I don't think I can work in any other industry. This is just too intellectually interesting. And like, mm-hmm. this is what my brain wants to think about. And so we thought, what should we do? Right. We had entrepreneurial backgrounds. We had built companies before, um, not extremely successful ones, but we had tried, mm-hmm. you know, um, and we thought, what should we do? And we came to the conclusion that the right thing for us to do was to start an investment firm because at the time there were like basically no investment firms, no professional investors in crypto. It was all like ICO and go, a bunch of retail people who weren't really thinking very hard. We thought, hey, like maybe if you thought harder about this stuff, like you could outperform. Uh, And that was kind of the genesis of Multicoin. Yeah, it was because back then... You know, Vinny, we had back Civic, so Vinny was like the first company, and I can't explain fully the vision that Vinny had because it was evolving, um, but we were seed investors, right? That happens. And I remember sending your deck to Fred because, you know, and I'm almost embarrassed sending crypto decks to people because, like, they should have seen everything. And I remember uh, Fred then did meet with Kyle, but there was a few funds that maybe Fred was investing in and Chris, but you're right. It was like nothing. It was just literally Twitter. I'm trying to think where people were talking even about crypto. I guess just Twitter. It was just Twitter. And then there were some forums um, that, that we used. Like there, there was, I mean, the Bitcoin talk forum is infamous, but there, there were a number of other forums, subreddits as well. And so today, dollar-wise, what, what is the TCAP? What's the total market cap, do you think, of all crypto? Is it like $2 trillion, $3 trillion? Somewhere in between there. Depends on the day. It's quite volatile, as you uh, may have noticed. Yeah, so so you, you set up the firm and you go get your registered investment advisor, right? Uh, we actually were an exempt reporting advisor in the early days. You only have to register once you pass 150 million, I believe. Um, so in the early days, we were way too small to need to register. We started with basically no money. It was just like my money, Kyle's money, and some investors who had invested in our previous company. Um, 
We started really small. No, you did, because at the time, Gary and I were like, we'll do it, but it has to come through an IRA. We were just trying to almost make it too difficult. Thank God you guys just went along with us. And we were like, if we're going to be in crypto, the only way for us to stick with it is if it's in a retirement account. So that was one of the best. Forgetting investing with you, that was like the second best decision I've ever made. And they were back-to-back decisions, which rarely happens. So in 2017, it was not easy, right? Then the, the winter happens, like right after you start. So what's that like? Winter was brutal. <laughs> um, it was really fucking hard. I yeah. mean, it just like you start a firm, you raise some money. Obviously, you know, not like a crazy amount of money. We started pretty small, but we were raising money through late 17, early 18. We right. brought on a number of great investors, you know, present company, included or excluded. What, what, what do you think? Uh, excluded. Um, yeah. <laughs> but... <laughs> Um, you know, we, we brought on some great investors and then like the market is just tanking and you're sitting there like, whoa, I have, you know, these like luminary investors that like I've lost money for, uh, and that does not feel good. It doesn't feel good. Does it? It'd be fun here to talk about the wins, but like you, as someone who's managed money for 20 years, uh, and I'll tell you on the other side of this, cause I never called you guys cause it was whatever the market was going down. Like what you got, no matter how big a genius you are and the weight of the world is on the market, it doesn't work. So I just remember seeing my statement and Gary and I would laugh because I my schmuck insurance involved my buddy Woody's fund and another fund. And like it was just like that year, just dealing with the people part, like Woody was so upset. And he went on to start Extend, which is, you know, multi-billion dollar company. I was coaching him through that. We've talked about it on this pod. But with you guys, I didn't know you. So I just left it alone saying, you know what? It's my retirement. It's not going to zero, in my opinion, because back then I was just following Fred and Chris Dixon. If they were bullish, I was bullish. And so, but what was it like for you? you first of all, you're down 30, 40% over the first year or two, right? Dribbling it away. You don't feel like a money manager when stuff is just going negative all the time. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, we knew that we should not be trying to overtrade these positions. I think about it now and I realized that that was the most important thing is that we knew to stick to our lane and we knew uh, what we don't know, right? Like a lot of people try to draw triangles on charts. They try to time the market (laughs) and I just break it down, you know, really simply. I'm like, is there a systematic strategy which can outperform by timing tops and bottoms? And I can't find one. Like I've asked everybody and like, I can't find a systematic strategy. And then second question is like, do I think that as portfolio manager or co-portfolio manager that like we can do a better job discretionarily on timing the market? And like, no, we can't. Like, like, we don't know. We just don't know this. Like, how do you know how much capital is coming in or out? The market is like this big, complex, emergent phenomena. There's a lot of chaos in it. So you can't predict that stuff. So really... We stuck to our lane, which was asset selection. It was really making large pointed bets mm-hmm. in specific projects that we were bullish on for some fundamental reason mm-hmm. and just sticking to that and not trying to time tops and bottoms. And so, yeah, we, we definitely lost a lot of money in the bear market. It was really painful um, and it sucked and people doubted us and, you know, it was not fun, but we stuck to it and then we turned around and now, you know, I think we've realized that that was the right strategy all along. Yeah, I'm, I'm blown away. I, 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 
don't look at it that often because I try and not get too excited and too upset about things. And again, like I said, for people that ask me, what do I think? I go, listen, Multicoin has a blog. Fred Wilson's been bullish since God was uh, set the earth on fire. And uh, Chris Dixon. So I'm like, well, what do I need to like when they get when they get bearish? Uh, I'll, I'll call somebody. But who was the first person to walk in you with the first crypto entrepreneur that you said this is a project that we've got to do? Because you had a side was side pocket something that you had from the beginning. Like how was the structure? Because it's really a cool structure that I think is going to become and maybe was popular, but it's going to become very popular again. Yeah. So we started with our hedge fund. Um, and the reason why we started with our hedge fund is because when we started in 2017, there basically were no private markets in crypto. Right. You just ICO'd and the token was public. Right. And so a hedge fund made the most sense to start with. Uh, then the first big private market investment that we made was we invested in the graph. Um, GRT is the mm-hmm. ticker now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we made a big pointed bet in the graph. We led their seed round with a million dollars. And at the time, this was like March or April of 2018, that was like 4% of the fund. Um, So it was a big bet in a seed round Mm -hmm. and we side pocketed it. We created a side pocket in the hedge fund. Basically what that means is we carved that out and we said only the investors who were in the fund at the time the investment was made would participate in the returns from that investment Mm -hmm. because we thought it would be unfair to have someone coming in, you know, a year later and get to buy in at the same price as people who already had their capital at work for a year, mm-hmm. right? Um, so we created a side pocket and the graph was um, really compelling. And when we wrote about it to our LPs, our LPs came to us and they said like, hey, do you think you could like put more of my capital in the side pocket? We're like, uh, that's not how funds work. You can't treat investors like unequally. We have to treat everyone pro rata. Uh, but what we can do is we can raise a opportunity fund or a venture fund to follow on on private investments if we think it's compelling enough and there's enough allocation. So we did that and we raised our first venture fund in July of 2018 and have been investing out of that. We recently closed off our second venture fund as well. So uh, that has grown into another part of the business. And so I'm going to go into the graph for a second, because from my understanding of it, it indexes info that lives on the blockchain. So basically like Google of the blockchain. Now, that's my layman reading of it. And Tiger just invested in it. So how do investments work in something like this? this the graph's been around for a few years. Now Tiger's investing in it. Who invests in what? And how do you decide what something's worth in an area where there's, is it just valued by the tokens or is the, is the centralized version of it owned by something? How do you, how do you think through this stuff? Oh, it's always on a case by case basis. Everything is so complex when you're here on the, you know, very frontier. But, um, in the case of the graph, everyone who invested has invested in tokens, us, Tiger, and everyone in between who invested in the graph bought tokens. The graph does exactly what you said. Uh, it's kind of like the Google of blockchain. It indexes all of the data that's going on chain and then makes it available for developers to pull into their app. An example is like, let's say you are trading on some decentralized exchange, you know, Uniswap or SushiSwap or something mm-hmm. on Ethereum. Well, how do you know what the price of the asset is? You have to query the whole chain. Uh, in order to know. And you have to see the entire history of all the trades that have happened. 
that's not easy to do. So instead of developers doing that themselves, they just offload it to the graph. The graph indexes everything, keeps it up to date. So that way, when you go to one of these decentralized exchanges, uh, you can see what the price is without having to compute the entire history of Ethereum from you know zero to now. And that, that's a really valuable service. And in exchange for doing that, uh, you know, the graph network charges some fees. Uh, so the more you query, the more you have to pay. And the really exciting thing about the graph is that every single write to a blockchain generates more than one read, mm. right? Like think about it. If you're posting to Instagram, mm -hmm. you post one picture, that's one write. But if you have just like a thousand followers and 10% of them see it, that's a hundred reads yeah. off the chain. So reads scale super linearly to writes. And that's the thing that we're most excited about the graph is, you know, we just see this as like a, a layer uh, of the Web3 stack that's absolutely essential and scales demand super linearly. It scales super linear, so it doesn't accelerate? You're not saying? If it starts with read, but won't it start looking like a accelerator curve at some point? Uh, like an exponential curve. So yeah, by super linearly, yeah. I just mean, you know, if you add X number of writes to the chain, mm -hmm. you will get more than X reads. And so how does a token like that eventually start going up? I know it's traded between three bucks and 50 cents. So how do you value something like that? Or how, who, who decides, like obviously the market decides on the value, but how do you, what measures growth in this world? Is it something that everybody's still got to work on? There's no fundamental rules that are agreed upon yet. No, no, no. For the graph in particular, they have very well-defined token economics. Um, and it's basically like a taxi medallion mm -hmm. model. So the idea is you have to stake GRT in order to be a service provider to the network. Mm -hmm. uh, and in exchange for doing that work, you get paid fees. So you can do a discounted cash flow model uh, in order to value this. Now you have to do the work, right? Um, if you own GRT, but you don't do anything then you're not earning, right? So it's like a taxi medallion is the best analogy. And in a world where AltaVista and back in the day, 100 search engines existed, is it the way it's structured that will decide or is the technology already set and forget in, in, in the graph as one or are there up and comers or how, how do you think about how the protocol itself is doing as an owner of it? Um, so from a technology perspective, there's really two approaches that we've seen to the query problem. One is what the graph is doing using what's called GraphQL or graph query language. And it's just a very developer-friendly way to query. Uh, it, it just makes it easy to ask the chain questions uh, and, and to query data. Um, and then the other is RPC, which is kind of like what Infura or Pocket Network or some of these other service providers do. And RPC is um, not as developer optimized necessarily. Like you have to ask more questions. It's not like a, it's not as nice of an experience as GraphQL. The analogy I would draw is like, if you ask someone or if you ask a question and you get like the exact answer versus you have to ask a thousand small questions and then compute the answer yourself. Hmm. That's, the, that's the difference, you know, in layman's terms. Uh, that being said, this stuff is all going to evolve. I think the GraphQL is really powerful and it's kind of the best that we have out there today. But if in the future, some genius somewhere comes up with some new querying schema 
or some new language. Like the beauty of these decentralized networks is that they evolve. Like look at what's happening to Ethereum right now. They're ripping and replacing the entire tech stack of Ethereum, basically. They're changing everything as time goes on. Uh, and so I would expect the same thing to happen for the graph if new technology is discovered. That would be better. The technology itself is all open source. So everything is you know, getting better really fast because no one wastes time reinventing the wheel. Everyone's always building on the latest and greatest. It's just fascinating. You can't let up for a second. So today, so much arguing as we headed into 2022 about Web3, right? The industry was hot. 2021 was a hell of a year, at least the beginning of 20 or through the Solana summer was a hell of a time. And now we're back to, you know, difficult, harder markets. And, you know, the, the hot money's getting vaporized. You know, there's gut checks everywhere. How do you two think about Web3? Where, what does that mean to you guys and the firm? And, and what is Web3 to Multicoin? What is Web3? Uh, I think Web3 can really be summed down to one thing. It's software that is credibly neutral. What does that mean? It means that no one controls it, no one owns it, and you don't need to trust anybody in order to trust the software. That, that's really what it boils down to. That From credible neutrality, you get a number of different things. You get things like it's censorship resistant. Um, so no one can stop you from using it. Mm -hmm. um, it's permissionless. It is fair to everybody. It is not going to be upgraded without your permission. There's no toll on it. There's no excess rents, right? Like the business model of Web2, uh, Web2 being Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, TikTok, all these things, mm -hmm. right? Like the business model of Web2 is pretty much always, hey, I own a thing and you have to pay me to access it. In the case of some of these, like Google and Facebook, uh, the thing that they own is user attention and the advertisers are the customers who are paying to access it. In the case of some of these other products uh, in, in Web2, you know, you as the user are actually paying to access something like Zoom or something. Right. Right. Uh, but that's the traditional business model for like all of Web2 is I own a thing and you have to pay me to access it. Mm -hmm. That doesn't work in Web3 because everything is open source. Everything is permissionless um, and everything is neutral. So you have to have alternative business models uh, that make sense in a Web3 native way. And is the key innovation here the wallet? Like for someone like me, you've got MetaMask. I saw that Phantom just raised it a billion dollars. You've got a MetaMask, I think it's six billion. And then you have Rainbow Wallet on the Ethereum network. How important is the wallet? Is that the browser moment or is it just overstated? And what needs to happen to get to this Web3 world faster? So the wallet is a really important piece, but I actually think it's like one layer away from the most important thing, which is the private key. Like the thing that really matters, like the equivalent of a browser for crypto is having a private key. Now, you can take your private key from wallet to wallet, just like you can log in with any browser as long as you are connected to the internet. Mm -hmm. So the private key is kind of like your identity on Web3. Uh, and that's the really, really important thing. And you can use any wallet you want. You can, you know, 
move your private key, you can move your assets. I think the wallets are important for user experience purposes, but I think the true uh, breakthrough here is you know, having a private key. And what is a private key? So what do I do to set up my first private key or someone listening? Because StockTwits is, you know, I define our audience here is like super interested. We're in, we're curious. We're not the first ones in, but like we know this is a thing. So we're in. So how do we go about getting a private key? So a private key is basically like if you ever set up like a Trezor or a Ledger or something, like it's a 12 words. Okay. If you set up a phantom wallet or MetaMask, like those words that you write down, that's yep. your seed phrase mm-hmm. that creates your private key. Okay. It's really, really important to back up because if you lose it, like it's gone, all the money's gone. And it's really important to not share it with anybody because if they have that, if they somehow get your private key, uh, they can take all of your money. Um, so it's it's like stealing your identity in a sense. So you have to protect it. But if you have your private key and it's appropriately protected, you get to interface with all of the things in Web3. It, it's like really the core foundational tech that makes everything possible. And why 12? Why can't it be 15? Or that's just enough? That's arbitrary. It's it arbitrary. can be anything. Got it. The, the more randomness in the private key, like the better it is to some extent. But like for the average person, like it doesn't matter. Now, next, I want to talk about something that you've been passionate about for a long time, which is helium. I know um, Kyle's been on the show and discussed it. I read as much as I can about it because I have friends who mine it. I have friends who were early there. Um, just give me like your best description of what helium is and where it's at in the world. Yeah, for sure. So Helium is a new business model for managing and deploying networks, uh, communications networks, telecom. Uh, notice the business model point there. That, that's really important. This kind of goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of what excited me about blockchain was a new way to coordinate human economic activity. Helium is not just a wireless network. It is a new business model for deploying these networks. The way that traditional telecom companies work is they hire a bunch of people who wear hard hats. They rent a bunch of space on top of tall buildings or towers. They pay those people to install really expensive radios um, on top of those buildings and maintain the whole network. Then they have these really expensive sales and marketing and customer support teams that they have in order to monetize this huge capital asset. And it's just expensive and big. Telecom is just a massive, massive industry. Helium flips an entire model on its head and it says, hey, you, as a regular person, just buy this hotspot. Uh, it costs you know, somewhere between 300, 400 bucks. You connect it to the internet, your Wi-Fi or Ethernet at home using your regular ISP, or you can even use something like Starlink as for backhaul if you want to. And you are now creating wireless coverage for your neighborhood. And you're basically earning money every time someone uses your hotspot. And that is really, really powerful because it cuts the cost dramatically. Helium is literally 99% cheaper than traditional telecom companies because they have no rent and no employees. Those are two huge expenses for the big telecom companies. So by cutting out the rent and employees and using blockchain as the way to coordinate rational, regular people to work together, we're able to make a telecommunications network at a fraction of the cost. There's over half a million of these hotspots already live. Most of the United States and Western Europe is you know, pretty well covered, but uh, there is still a lot of room to expand. 
in I guess the the world today is Verizon, AT and T, Crown Castle, which is an eighty billion dollar company, right? So Crown Castle is like the cell tower stuff. Where do they fit in all this, if anywhere? I think that if you are Crown Castle or another one of these tower companies, you should be putting helium hotspots up on your towers because you might as well, right? Just like now we are seeing with Bitcoin mining in uh, you know like big power plants and. Uh, we're even seeing like the state government of Texas go and embrace Bitcoin mining as a way to huh. stabilize the energy grid and make you know some additional revenue for the state. Like that, that makes a lot of sense. I think the same thing will happen with helium mining for these big telecom companies, and I think that they will all join the network. Interesting. So Crown Castle, they could go like lock down a year supply of these heliums and just and start mining and offering. A great service. Yeah, I don't. I don't know about locking down a year supply. I'm not, I'm not sure what <laughs> that means. Of the market. But, um, are, are people? I'm just saying. Like these people have such big balance sheets. It's just fascinating to think. At the, you know, when do they turn the switch? Or you can imagine these boardroom discussions where they're just sending people to Russia that bring up the helium thing, and then two years goes by and they go, "Where, where was that guy that we sent?" So, like, how long does it take for the world to just say, "Holy fuck"? There has to be a moment where the switch happens. Right now, it's still just early. Yeah, it's still very early right now. I think the next 24 months is really the critical turning point because we're seeing real demand come onto the network, right? We saw uh, Dish Networks announce that they're working with Helium now. So that was the first big telecom company mm -hmm. to um, really start engaging with the network. And as you know, these things are like dominoes, right? Like um, you need someone to be first. But once someone has like gone over the hump, it's a lot easier for the second, third, fourth, fifth to follow. And what is the consumer gain? So it flips. I'm paying four or five hundred bucks a month between my kids and I. I don't even look. I used to argue with AT and T every month because I could save a little money. Now it's to the point where it's so cheap in my mind. I'm sure they're ripping me off, but I don't think. So when does it flip? Or, or it, like, what happens to the consumer if healing becomes a true network? Do we all save a ton of money? Do we, are we all just safer with our communications? Is the government going to be pissed because they can't tap us? Like, what are the things that happen on the way? Uh, so the most important thing that happens is that you remove the rent-seeking middleman. You Those remove bastards. the profits of the centralized telecom companies, really. Right. Like, that's that's the key thing is the consumer wins because prices go down. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason that prices are going down is that Helium just has a sustainably lower cost structure than centralized telecom companies. Because once again, no rent and no employees. And that just makes it way cheaper. And like that's what I'm really excited about when it comes to blockchain technology to kind of zoom out for a bit is, you know, previously, if you look at like how business has traditionally worked, you have a company, the company makes all of the rules and kind of governs their business and is therefore able to take some like excess profit because of that, or what economists would call rent uh, because of that. But with blockchain, what you're able to do is you're able to have rules for people to interact with each other without having rulers. You don't have anyone actually enforcing the rules. The code enforces the rules. And so you don't need to pay for that anymore. And so the costs go down for everybody. And I think that's really the, the envision is making costs lower. It's amazing because, you know, America's just used to being able to yell at somebody, whether it's the guy running the NFL or Verizon. So it's that interesting dilemma uh, that we want it 
until we got it. And then we don't know if we'll miss the person that we get, the centralized person that we get to yell at because we're just so used to having the overlords. So this is phenomenal. I appreciate this. Just if, one, thing, one quick thing. Yeah, please. Uh, having someone to yell at, basically. Like my vision for Helium or for DeFi or for any of this blockchain stuff is not that regular consumers just go buy the product directly from the chain. I actually think what happens is not that like regular people are just going interacting directly with DeFi protocols or mm -hmm. hooking up their cell phone directly with Helium 5G. What I think happens is you have those blockchain networks as a back end, and then you have centralized companies as a front end. What DeFi means to me is that your local um, credit union or savings and loan institution, like community bank, can access capital markets in the same way that JP Morgan can and can offer the same types of products that they can because everyone is on a level playing field, but you still need you know, that front end. You need someone to call, oh, I forgot my password. Oh, um, like I need some help with this, whatever the customer support request is. Or you need someone who's gonna engage with regulators. And that's gonna be some business that is built on top of this back end. Coming back to Helium, like I think there's gonna be what are called MVNOs or mobile virtual network operators who basically white label the Helium network and resell it because then they do the customer support stuff and you know they do all of the um, soft, squishy stuff that's still necessary, but they get the huge cost benefits and the level playing field that the network gives them. Yeah, one thing that I'm thinking of, and you can tell me how crazy I am, but you know, someone who, like myself, and I consider you guys a fintech investment, who's been investing, I've been investing in fintech, I don't know, forever, since I first couldn't use a Bloomberg and how to use Yahoo Finance and how to watch CNBC. So my whole life's about like, oh God, I'm just going to fix everything for myself. And then I flash forward to 2022. Uh, I still don't fully, I mean, I have a private key, but uh, I'm scared to put stuff on it because I can't remember my name. I've seen, you know, Robinhood go public and plummet to 10 billion. I've seen Square plummet and to 40 or so billion. I've seen all this fintech um, and the valuations are just dwarf. Then I see JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs and Wells Fargo and Schwab, the incumbents stronger than ever. <laughs> so I've been doing 20 years of fintech and I say I've done well and people have made money, but it just feels like nothing happened. And it might all just, and, and by the way, Master, you know, I had Chamath babbling on the internet as we all do, saying that MasterCard and Visa were short and they just had like their best quarters ever. So they're basically like the railroads of money. And so here we are in 2022 and FinTech in many ways is going nowhere. Not, not that Square's not a great product or Venmo's not a great product or Robinhood's not a great product uh, from where they started but no real dent. The only real dent has probably been Bitcoin. And so, you know, like you said, we kind of didn't get the change and maybe the change now that I'm tired is finally here. Do you, do you think about it that way at all? I do. Um, the, let me give you an analogy. Um, if you remember what like the mid 2000s were like, you know, I, I remember having a Blackberry. Maybe sure. you had a Blackberry. Maybe you had like a Nokia Symbian phone or like a Windows phone or, or one of those things. And like the vision for having a computer that's always connected to the internet in your pocket was really clear. Yes. Everyone knew that this would be a thing. And there were all these big companies spending a lot of money to try and build that, right? That's kind of 
similar to, you know, what you're talking about with fintech of like, people know that like the service that's provided by these big banks and stuff is just like pretty bad. Yeah. Um, and it's not really inclusive. Um, it treats a lot of people really poorly. A lot of people are just like not able to get the financial products that they otherwise would want to get. Um, and everyone's trying to build the smartphone equivalent, uh, right? Like everyone's trying to build the iPhone, mm-hmm. uh, but like the tech just wasn't ready in, before the iPhone. And the iPhone wasn't yeah. just like a moment, right? It was like mm-hmm. the first iPhone wasn't great, but like over the first two to three years, it became clear like, oh, aha, we've had the moment, like the tech actually works now. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of where we are with fintech, where we've spent the past, I don't know, five to 10 years on fintech and crypto kind of building stuff. Like the vision is really clear. We want everyone in the world to be able to access global financial markets. Like that's that's a very clear vision. We want everyone to be able to do payments. We want it to be cheap. We want everyone, everyone in the world to be able to invest. And we want that to be really cheap, no matter if you know you are a wealthy person living in New York City or a not wealthy person living in you know somewhere in rural India. Like we want you to have access to capital markets. We want you to have access to payments. Really simple stuff. But now I think the tech is like, almost ready. Like, I think we just had the iPhone moment. Good point. I think we were, I was living in a BlackBerry financial world, even though the BlackBerry diet iPhone came along for web two, I think financial 2.0 just happened and we need, they call it web three, but I just, I'm really bummed that like plaid, everything that I've seen is just working on the old pipe still. It's going to change. It's going to change. And it's because the new tech works now. Like the full Web3 stack like is really coming together. This is the stuff that we were dreaming about years ago of like, oh, a fast, scalable blockchain for execution. Oh, a decentralized network of GPUs for rendering. Oh, um, storage networks that can't be censored um, to store data in. Uh, query networks to actually query all of this stuff. Like, you know, we were dreaming about all of this, but now we have Solana, we have Render, we have The Graph, we have Arweave, and these things work. They're live in production. Um, Sure, are there bugs that need to be worked out? Yeah, like, you know, the first iPhone didn't have 3G, right? Like, it didn't have the App Store. These things take a little bit of time uh, to make everything work seamlessly. But I think, you know, we're finally here where, like, all of the pieces work. And now there's no, like, big unsolved problems between here and you know, the ultimate vision. Now it's just a bunch of work and engineering work and implementation and rollout and distribution. Uh, and that's really exciting to me. Okay, that's a great way to sum it up. I have Kyle coming on. I want to talk about, because Render's interesting to me. I own a bunch. You guys own it. Um, something today that no one's heard of that's walked into your office, something that maybe, you know, the fog of 2021, end of 21 into 2022, you've got, you know, crypto prices down 50% from the highs. Uh, what's something that you're excited about that we haven't talked about today? Um, I am really excited about a network called UXD. Okay. Um, so disclosure, we are investors in like basically everything that I've mentioned. We own Graph, we own Render, we own Arweave, we own Solana, we yep. own UXD and UXP. Mm-hmm. Um, we own all these things. So I, I do have to disclose that. Yeah. I'm really excited about UXD because UXD is, in my opinion, the right construction for a decentralized stablecoin. It's a very simple construction. The way that it works is it goes long spot 
and sells futures to create a delta neutral position that collects funding. And so you're able to create a decentralized stablecoin. Uh, you know, it's not USDC. USDC has dollars in the bank, but, you know, could be censored. The government can go tell Circle, like, hey, you need to do X, Y, and Z. Um, it's not something like DAI um, or MakerDAO. Uh, that requires over-collateralization. You need to put, you know, at least $150 worth of ETH into Maker in order to get $100 worth of DAI out. Hmm. That's just not capital efficient. Right. UXD is actually capital efficient uh, because you only need to put in $100 worth of assets to get $100 out. And I think it's, you know, probably the best construction. Uh, it's not really listed anywhere to go trade. Like you have to go and trade on like DeFi in order to get it, mm -hmm. which also makes me more excited for it because, you know, when things are hard to do, fewer people do them. And if you expect them to get easier, then, you know, more people will do them. Uh, and there's an arbitrage. So the three letters UXD. All right, people can go Google it. Is there something on the Multicoin blog about it? There is. I wrote a post about it um, like six months ago-ish. Okay, got um, it. So yeah, check out the post. I appreciate it. And then where's your head around mining and compute? Like, I'm so excited. I mean, is there an AWS of this new world that provides the computational power? Where do AMD and the, like, where do they all fit into all this? Um. I think that the chip makers will do very well in this new world. Uh, you know, NVIDIA, um, TSMC, AMD, et cetera, will, will do really well. I think that uh, the existing cloud providers will continue to operate their existing businesses um, and, and things will be fine. Um, I just think we are expanding the pie right. for compute with Web3 because we're making things possible that previously were not possible. Uh, the breakthrough on Web3 isn't like, oh, we're throwing more compute at it. It's the way in which the computation is done. It's trust minimized. It's neutral, mm -hmm. right? Like that is really the breakthrough. And like Amazon just can't give you trust minimized compute. Like that doesn't make sense. It's still owned by a company. The company can change the rules on you. No matter how much Amazon says they won't change the rules on you, they will change the rules on you. Mm. You should talk to Kyle about Google Glass. Google was like, oh, we're building this platform. You can build on it. He like built a whole company, raised venture capital, had a few million dollars in revenue. And then Google was like, oh, we just don't care about glass anymore. We're going to kill it. Correct. Right. Like we did chat about trust that. these big yeah. companies. Mm -hmm. No. So it's really exciting because the demand will just keep coming. And, and so we'll have these like we're seeing in the cloud right now, these valuation pullbacks. It's, it's just the demand and supply is just is really hard to measure, but the demand will keep coming. And I think what you're saying is this compute is such an interesting part of this because, you know, in the 1999 bubble, it was all about the bandwidth bubble. And now, you know, these chip makers are almost, they're almost, they're almost just growth companies, not cyclical because of compute, it seems like, and gaming and all this stuff that comes with them. So it's really been a fascinating moment. Well, Tushar, I really appreciate your time. I've already taken up an hour of your time. Congratulations on uh, just building a, a great firm. I've had a lot of fun coming to the events, listening to smart people, reading. And I do think, you know, my it's, it's a bummer for me at 56 to feel like the frontier is just here, you know, like someone's about to release an iPhone, right? So it's coming. Like we've been living in this world of, you know, of Venmo and Coinbase and Square in the U.S., but in the end, it's still the same people for some whatever reason. It's still the man. So I'm excited about the future. We'll hopefully have you back once a quarter to talk about, you know, as this fog clears here, 
We'll catch up on UXD. I'm going to ask Kyle about uh, Render, which seems like a really cool application. And I hope you guys have a, a great 2022. Awesome. Well, thanks. It was great to be on, and I'll chat with you soon. All right. Thanks, Tushar. K-Nut! Howard! The sweet stylings of Tushar Jane. We've had Kyle a few times, you yeah. know, because I know Kyle, but now I got to meet Tushar at his event, and uh, really good. He explained it better than anyone I've ever I was just trying before. to explain it to me. And I feel like the, the stable coin is, I didn't even want to go ask the next question because I'm not using them yet. And it's still freaking me out. I'm not a currency person. U.S. dollar works. You know, I'm in this weird spot where I just want U.S. dollars still. You know, I know that I want some of this other stuff and they've given that to me and I'm scared out of my mind. But I still live in this U.S. dollar world and I'm a dinosaur, it seems like, which makes you super dinosaur. <laughs> so uh, I want to talk about Render. I got Kyle coming up, right, on the podcast? Yeah. So we're going to dive into some more crypto and how he sees the world. But pretty amazing that uh, they were a few million bucks in 2017. Now they're uh, in the billions. And most of that is profit. So it really is one of the most incredible. I've invested for a long, long time and done a lot, a lot of work. And I've never seen anything like this. And of course, this could be the top. You know, that's how the markets work. But the way they explain it to me, it's still at the beginning, which means volatility is here and it's not going to be pretty, but like the future is just out there. You know, we've been in this Blackberry moment and uh, the iPhone's out there somewhere for this uh, Web 3.0. And you've got Coinbase, you've got uh, FTX, even StockTwits is working on some cool stuff. And you've got Discord and you've got, you've got these Web 2.0 companies that have all around the edges and uh, I think what comes next is going to be pretty profound. And maybe this kind of tech bear market that we're in right now is the impetus to get people focused on the next thing. So you got to keep your eyes open, people. We are doing that here once a week on Panic with Friends. Search my name on Apple or Google, uh, Howard Linson. Uh, you go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts, uh, YouTube, search my name, subscribe. You get one of these once a week, me and Canute diving in with guests, investors, entrepreneurs, traders, founders, venture capitalists, trying to stay just a little bit ahead of the market. And I appreciate you tuning in. Tell your friends and subscribe. See everybody next week. Howard Lindzen is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage. All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of social leverage or stock twits. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast.